All right, good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, a couple things I want to add to the announcements. Uh, first is, remember, we've got our political conversations class called How to Have Less Terrible Political Conversations. Uh, it started this morning at 9.45 and will be going on for at least another three weeks. So be here for that, okay? Grant's leading that. Uh, I heard the class this morning was great, uh, and we're kind of digging in a little bit more specifically into uh, just the realm of talking about politics, more so than our sermon series has addressed. Uh, so please be a part of that in that class on nine, at 9.45, okay? Um, second thing is, so next week's going to be a little weird because we've got showcase, we've got a lot of things going on. We, on Saturday at 10.45, are going to do our what we've tried to do every other month, but have been rained out just about the last three times, walking the community over uh, near the MLK. So that's going to be 1045 at Rivera on Saturday. All right, that'll be plenty of time. What? It's going to rain? How do you know? Storm? Okay, here's the thing. God does not want us walking the neighborhood anymore. We've, let's just admit that somehow we do more harm than good and he's protecting the community from us. Um, we are still going to plan to do it because you know what? It's a week out and who knows how the weather is going to be a week out, okay? Uh, so we're still going to plan it. And the second announcement will be great because we are going to still do church that Sunday, okay? And Melissa Kinfield, who is one of our crazy sociologists, uh, is going to come and talk about immigration and blue-collar work, okay? And so that will be one that you definitely will want to be here for, don't want to miss. Uh, I know we're getting into some kind of tricky passages with Romans. Romans 9 through 11 are pretty hard, painful even. Um, but, but part of the reason that we have Eddie here today, which I'll introduce in a second, Melissa coming next week, is to give you a sort of a fresh take on those chapters uh, and, uh, and how they relate to politics. So please, if you've read them, if you've listened to them, uh, that's great, and take notes, but really, during uh, these next two sermons today and uh, next Sunday, if you will go back, take your notes, think through the passages uh, from what's been said, I think you'll find that you connect quite a bit better with uh, uh, what's happening in these really, really challenging uh, verses of, or chapters of Romans, okay? So, great. Keep on reading. Keep on doing it. Yes, this morning, as I've already alluded to, Eddie Trauber is here. Uh, some of you know him. Uh, some of you don't, uh, possibly because most of the work that he uh, has done with Focus for the last five or six years has been personal, kind of counseling type stuff. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he's here with his family, his wife, Jill, and one of their, uh, their kids, Levi, who I'm going to try to put to work if I can. Uh, we've already agreed on it, I think. Uh, he's willing to work for me, which is great. I need more workers. Uh, so anyway, um, they're here uh, this morning, which is really a treat for us. And uh, Eddie's going to be talking about Romans 9 and the idea of our adoption as sons and daughters of God. And I just think that's such a cool topic. He'll also address, you know, some of the things related to adoption in our society and various things like that. But uh, I'm mostly excited that Eddie's here because Eddie's had a real impact on my life, uh, personally speaking. Uh, in particular, uh, he has helped me work through a lot of anger issues over the last few years. Uh, and, um, I mean, you know, I just can't uh, possibly thank him and thank you enough uh, for the time that he spent with me, and, uh, I mean, it's really, uh, you know, how your perspective completely changes after God uses someone to really communicate 
his purpose and his spirit and his character. And that's really been my life these last couple of years as I've worked through some really just tough stuff. And I know, you know, it's confidential, it's private, but I want to let you know that there's many of us in here that have those stories. We've worked with Eddie, we've worked with other counselors, uh, and always want to encourage that because, uh, you know, God can really work through other people to help uh, change the way we view life, to help us understand his character much better than we did before. Uh, and so I thank you for that, and thank you for the blessing that you are to our churches. So without further ado, come on up. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Well, thank you for that introduction. Because of confidentiality, I can neither confirm nor deny that I know anyone named Brad. But um, thank you very much for that. Um, basically, my background, I grew up in Irving, not too far from here. And uh, got a fist bump back there. Yay. Um, my wife and I have been married 26 years as of two weeks ago. Um, praise God for that. She's put up with me a long time and doesn't have any intentions of getting rid of me that I know of anytime soon. We've got, uh, can y'all hear me all right? Is the sound coming on? Okay. We've got four kiddos, and I'll uh, tell you a little bit more about them here in a bit. That sounds really deep. Is that okay? Okay. And I have been a licensed marriage and family therapist uh, supervisor for the last 20 plus years. I work a lot with focus students and leadership. Uh, I've spoken at a lot of focus events and uh, have worked with a lot of you guys and really enjoy working with young people. Um, they tend to be really highly motivated to change. That's one thing I love about college students is uh, a lot of times when I work with older people, they're like, eh, you know, I've been this way my whole life. I don't know that I'm gonna change that much, but college students are excited, they're energetic, they typically have a, a focus and a passion with what they wanna do with their life and uh, have a real passion with working with you guys. So thank you for having me this morning. So growing up, uh, I lived in a very different world. Uh, it was a world where moral reason and Judeo-Christian values really permeated the whole culture, right? Even if I disagreed with someone on their stance regarding political issues or a life choice issue, we could have a rational disagreement and walk away from it having exchanged ideas and it was beneficial for both of us. Is that the world you guys live in typically? No? What happened? It's changing, isn't it? I mean, the world has always been anti-God, right? That's nothing new. But it seems like the culture we live in is becoming more anti-Christian and really anti-God's design for everything. How we approach and talk with people about godly matters is evolving over time, and we're seeing that pretty quickly. While we used to be able to have those rational debates and disagreements with people, more people who hold viewpoints that are really in oppositions to God's Word are becoming increasingly less tolerant. That right, increasingly less tolerant. They're becoming less tolerant. So welcome to what the rest of the world has dealt with for the last 2,000 years or more. Right? We've kind of lived in a bubble where we've had this isolated place where we could have those conversations and debates with people. And that isn't how the rest of the world typically functions. So how do we connect with today's culture? Well, before we jump into that, I'm going to say that I am suffering, like a lot of you guys, with seasonal allergies. So if you all will excuse me. Um, I've got some water and i got some cough drops, so uh, try not to let it be a distraction. But how do we connect with today's culture? What do we do? I mean, are we to be silent? Are we to be scared or shut our mouths? I mean, isn't that the intimidation tactics that the opposition typically wants from us? Is they want to shut us up? Is that what you guys do? That's what you're doing right now. <laughs> Deer in the headlights. No, we're called to speak the truth, aren't we? 
regardless of the consequences, regardless of the cost. And hopefully before we finish today, I want to share three things with you that can help you as you try to reach out and connect with people in today's world and you try to have these difficult conversations. But just be aware that when approaching difficult topics or topics that you disagree on for discussion, our intention has got to come from a place of love and compassion and really submission to the Lordship of Christ. Okay? So Romans 9 is our context today, and ultimately, Romans 9 is about choice. Okay? It's about God choosing Israel as his children. It's about, about God choosing to bless one person or nation or uh, uh, over another. And it's about, God, about, excuse me, it's about people's reaction to God's choice. And that's not always real positive. So it's important to point out that when this chapter uh, discusses the relationship of Israel to God the Father, and particularly their being recipients of God's blessings, it's not talking about salvation. Okay? It is talking about the blessings that Israel received from God by him choosing them as his people. And there are a lot of those we'll look at. And in context, it's discussing the Old Testament choosing of the Jews as God's children. I want to look at Romans 9 this morning as the frame of talking about the choices that we face in loving the people in the world around us, which is not always easy. And there's a whole lot of information in Romans 9s, and we're not at all going to get to, to every bit of it by any means. So let me read it, and then we'll spend some time looking at parts of it. So Romans 9, and this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing here. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for the, sake of the, for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is, not that, excuse me, it is not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born and had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. 
One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and so for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Wow. There's a lot there. So a lot of it's, again, written specifically geared towards the Jews, right? Um, and in looking at how we are using this, con this passage this morning, as far as a context to connect with people in today's culture, the first thing that really jumps off the page at me is the Apostle Paul here in anguish. Right When you really start this, this passage, this chapter, his writing is painful almost to read, right? Um, he's talking about the Jews, his people, who have turned away from God and who have also not accepted Jesus as their Messiah. Now, this is the same Paul who we see over and over again in Scripture who is locked up in prison, in chains, and he's rejoicing, right? You remember that? How in the world is he able to be joyful in those situations, and yet here he's poured out his heart? It says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. In fact, he says, I, I wish that I could cut myself off from Christ for your sake. If, if you could come to know Christ as my people, I'd be willing to give up my salvation, which is impossible. But Right? I mean, you see the depth of his anguish here. I mean, that's almost painful to read. His heart is literally torn out for his people. And he says that his people, the children of Israel, get this, who were chosen by God to be God's sons, blessed with divine glory, received God's covenants, the law, the temple worship, the promises of God, the patriarchs, and they're blessed that the Messiah is going to be traced through their lineage. Even with all those blessings, they're blind to God and his goodness towards them. And so what was God thinking? Why would he pick such a hard-hearted people to follow him, to be his chosen people, right? Yet are we any different than that? Aren't we the same? I mean, we rebel against God. 
We sin against him. We take his gifts for granted, and we live like we're not his children at times, don't we? Yeah. We're no different. In fact, people are the same regardless of where or when we live. And I really pray this morning that we can take a lesson from Paul here and his words at the beginning of this chapter, that if we're not hurting or in anguish about the lost people in the world, then something's wrong with us, guys. I mean, we need to pray and ask God to open our eyes and to soften our hearts so that we can see the people around us every day, literally, who are lost, who are separated from God, who are going to spend an eternity away from Him. That's what we need from God. We have a calling to share the gospel with them, and it should break our hearts that they're living without Christ. So this is the first of three choices that I think we need to make when we interact with the world. We've got to choose our attitude and our mindset, okay? And we've got to choose that to those people around us. We've got to see them as highly valuable to God, you know? We can't see them as, you know, people that are evil or angry or mean-spirited. We've got to see them as people that are out of relationship with Him, and we've got to love them. So that's a choice we can make every day, Right? Is that as simple as just choosing to do that? Seeing some head and shaking no, yes. Is that an easy choice for you guys? To love unlovable people? <laughs> it's difficult? Uh, is it ever difficult to love yourself? Yeah, every day, sometimes. Um, ever difficult to love your friends? Surely not. Yes. Uh-oh. Yeah. And then on top of that, you say, okay, what about people that don't like me or that maybe I don't even like? All of a sudden, that's a whole different level of choice, isn't it? But it is really as simple as choosing, okay? I mean, the world would like to convince us it's otherwise, right? You really don't have a choice in this. Your emotions dictate everything that you do, right? Uh, If somebody um, does something that makes you angry, then you're justified in lashing out at them. That's just what you do, right? So, for example, think about movies that we watch, right? Um, In a movie, if somebody insults someone, what happens? They probably assault them, physically assault them back, right? If somebody hurts me physically, I'm going to hurt them worse, right? You punch me, I'm going to break your leg. And God forbid you do something to my family in the movies because you're all dead at that point, right? You know, Liam Neeson's going to come out and just wipe out everybody. So, right? I mean, that's the culture that we live in. But that's not who we're called to be in Christ, right? We're called to lay down our lives for the people that don't like us or disagree with us. We're called to be sacrificial to them. And those are choices that we make. That's who we are as followers of Christ. Not living according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And the Spirit guides our decisions and it helps us live a life of self-control. And choosing to to love the people around us is something that we can do every day. The second choice that we can make can impact our witness or our ability to speak into the lives of the lost involves the the, uh, idea of adoption. And uh, Paul goes on here in verse 6. He says... It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. 
So here's where Paul begins to kind of unpack this whole concept of adoption into God's family, right? And remember, Paul was, was he a Gentile? No, what was he? Jew, and not just a Jew, but he was a Pharisee, which means what? Yeah, he was a top-tier Jew, whatever that means. <laughs> I think that's a new phrase. I mean, he was an expert in the law, right? So here's Paul, an expert in the law, and one of the things that was so important to the Jewish people was their ancestry and their history. And why was that so important? Why? Why was it so important to the Jews to understand their ancestry and their history? Absolutely, because God said way back where, I'm going to send a Messiah and it's going to come through one of your lineages, one of your lines. And so every Jew could recite their lineage all the way back to Abraham because they wanted to be able to know, okay, is the Messiah coming through our family or not? That's why it was so important. And so when Paul, this Jewish scholar, says, okay, guys, it's not about your lineage. It's about something else. I mean, that's mind-blowing to the Jews at the time, right? And he talks a lot here in chapter 9 about their ancestry and about their heritage. And it's something the Jews would have gotten a lot more than the Gentiles would. So we got to remember that as we read. And remember that they were God's chosen people right? I mean, he picked them, he hand-selected them, and he delivered them out of Egypt, right? And sent them into a promised land. And uh, he did tell them, a Messiah is going to come through you. And that's why they were so concerned with their bloodlines and their ancestry. But here he is kind of changing the rules almost. And he goes on to quote in the Old Testament later in, in verse 25, he says, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called, they will be called children of the living God. Again, he's taking this whole concept of you're a Jew because you were born this way and therefore you're entitled to God's blessings. And he's blowing that up and saying, okay, guys, that's not what this is all about. God had something bigger in mind. And he's saying that your birthright has to do with your relationship with Christ and not who your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents were, okay? He's saying we are adopted into the family of God. So what is adoption, okay? Adoption is when you take a child to raise them as your own. And not only do you just take them in and raise them, but they get every right and privilege and responsibility as a child that you would have naturally, okay? Just like earthly adoption, God's adoption is the act of his bringing us uh, into his family, people who were not naturally his, and he legally makes them to be just like his son Jesus. Okay? It's where we're brought into a new family and totally divested of belonging to our former family. God changes not only who we are, but he changes what we get, which is pretty amazing. This adoption into God's family, it's really the ultimate form of redemption. Okay? It's different than justification, right? Uh, justification is a legal term where God, imagine him sitting up on the stand as the judge, right? Um, he's looking over these documents, and um, you guys got in some trouble, didn't you? Yeah, you made some mistakes. You're standing here before the judge, and he's looking at the paperwork, 
and he's reviewing everything, and you've actually completed whatever your work was to do. You finished your program, uh, your community service. Hopefully you didn't serve time. I don't know what you did. It's pretty bad. <laughs> but he looks at this, and he signs off of it, and he says, okay, you're done. You don't owe anything else. Okay, that's justification. Okay, adoption is very different. Adoption is where God turns away from those papers, and he turns over here, and he signs some other documents, and he takes off his judicial robe, and he gets down off the stand, and he picks you up, and he takes you home and raises you as his kid. Because he signed those papers, and legally you are his child at that point. Huge difference. It's not just, I'm not holding you responsible for anything else. You've completed your work. Instead, you are mine. I love you more than anything else. I want to take you home. I want to spend eternity with you. Wow. <clears throat> Justification's a legal term only, right? But adoption, it's a familial term. It has to do with family. It's God giving us the full rights and responsibilities and privileges of being his children. It's pretty amazing when you stop and think about it, right? I mean, I haven't done anything to deserve this. And it's way beyond my wildest imagination to have a God <clears throat> as amazing as the creator of the universe, right? To say, he wants to be my dad. And not only that, but he wants me to adopt, he wants to adopt me into his family. And all of a sudden, I get a family of brothers and sisters that are pretty cool. <clears throat> now, they're all kind of messed up a little bit, just like me, <laughs> right? But they're all pretty amazing. And God looked at every one of us and said, I want you. I choose you. I want that one right there. That's my kid over there. And he adopted us into his family. And all of a sudden, it's not just me and God, but it's us. We are family. And for some people, that's pretty awesome. People who didn't grow up with a family, right? Some people who grew up in a messed up family, that's pretty awesome as well. Wow, all of a sudden I get to be a part of a bigger family. And again, some of us have problems, but there are a lot of them that are pretty amazing. So most of you probably know someone who's been adopted before, earthly adopted, um, or someone that's adopted someone into their family. Is it an easy process? No, not usually. Uh, adoption means quite a few things. It means making some major changes, right? It means you get your hands dirty and your emotions all tangled up. It means sacrifice forever. Um, doesn't go away. But when you begin to understand God's gift of adoption to us, bringing us into his family, it really can change the way that you think about earthly adoption. Bringing orphans into our families is a beautiful picture of God bringing us into his family. And I want to challenge you to think about this morning, think about your adoption into God's family, okay? Uh, wherever you're at in life. And how has God adopting you into his family impacted your life, okay? Um, what are some ways that you would describe how you thought about yourself before you were adopted into God's family? Anybody? What was that? Good for nothing? How did you think about yourself before you were taught, adopted into God's family? Unworthy of being loved. Okay, anybody else? Lost. Lost. Worthless. Worthless. Depressed. Depressed. Man, uppers, great. <laughs> but really, I mean, think about it, guys. 
there's not much to live for, right? If you don't have Christ in your life, where's the joy? Where are the blessings? And all of a sudden you get adopted into God's family, and what does God say about us? Not what do I feel or what do I think, but what does God say? That changes to you are loved, you are redeemed, you are chosen, you are a child of the creator of the universe. You are mine, right? I mean, he gives us a ton of things that he says about us in Scripture. And usually they really contradict what the world wants us to believe or the baggage that we have. I mean, what about how, how has it changed the way you view God? Before you were a believer, how did you view God? Scary? Scary? Distant? Distant? Mad? Mad? All right. Abstract. Abstract. Waiting for me to mess up. up. He's going to zap me any minute now. (laughs) Right? That's pretty messed up, isn't it? And then all of a sudden he adopts you into his family, and how do you see him? He's a loving father. He's someone that's patient with me, who cares more about me than anybody else ever could. Wow. I mean, that, that adoption process changes us. How does it change the way that you see the world? Does it change the way that you see people as in need of a savior rather than some guy trying to run me off the highway? Right? I mean, when you think about the lost, does it transform how you look at them? Yeah. Hopefully it does. Our adoption by the God of heaven, I mean, it should radically transform everything in our life. But then how does that get transferred to the people around us, right? Have you ever thought about adoption as something you might do at some point in your life? Yeah? Okay. That's very encouraging to hear because there are a lot of kids in this world who need a family to love them and to be the picture of love and redemption to them, right? Maybe you're at a place where you could consider it now, but maybe it's something you need to do in the future, somewhere down the road, after you get out of school, maybe if you get married, Uh, You get a little bit older. So why should we consider adoption? Well, we're called to care for the orphans of the world. In fact, James 1, 27 says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. That's a pretty big statement right there, right? I'm giving you a clue, guys. Here is what God considers, you know, faultless and pure religion. Okay, look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Is that that hard? No? I mean, that's pretty clear cut, isn't it? Look after the kids. Look after the widows. Take care of them. I mean, I believe that we should all at least consider adoption at some point, not only because we're called to take care of some child who doesn't have a family, but also because it has the transformative ability to change who we are. Okay? We actually get to be like God to someone not saying we get to be God, but we get to be like God to someone, and not just for a brief moment when we're sharing a meal with a homeless person, or when we're sharing the words of life to someone, but each and every day for the rest of our lives, I get to be like God to someone, right? That God who adopted me into his family. And that choice changes the way the world sees us as well. And not that that's the only reason to think about adoption, but when you see Christ followers doing something so big, as changing their lives and transforming the lives of a child or multiple children, people sit up and take notice. I mean, they tend to say, whoa, you guys are a little different. What's going on with y'all? Right? I mean, they begin to see Jesus in us. 
And maybe that opens some doors to people that wouldn't have listened to us before. So what if I can't adopt, right? You know, what if I'm not really interested in that? That's not what God's calling me to do. I'm not at a place in life I can do that. Okay, it's not for everyone. But there are a lot of things that you can do to care for orphans or even just children in need, right? Um, we were driving over here today and like three blocks from here, there's a little building that has CASA on the front. Anybody know what CASA is? Okay. CASA is a program set up by the state where they get volunteers and you know when a child's taken out of their home, they're put in CPS care, right? Um, the parents get attorneys, uh, CPS has attorneys, and somebody needs to speak for that child, right? And so volunteers go and they work at CASA, they volunteer at CASA, and all they do is go out and they spend time with those children. They go and visit them in the home, they go and visit them at school, they take them maybe to get something to eat and say, hey, how are you guys doing? And they get to be, they go into court and they're a voice for that child who can't speak for themselves. So they are court-appointed special advocates uh, and they work in the CPS system. So that's something you guys can do, okay? If you're a college student, ever think about being a part of Big Brothers Big Sisters? That's a way you could go and serve and work with some of these kids, you know, or even just identify some single parents that you know. These are not orphans, but these are kids in need, right? And just say, hey, if you need somebody to babysit twice a month for free, I'll do it for you. Do you know how big a blessing that would be? Man, I could actually go out with some of my friends once or twice a month. That would be awesome. Or I need to run to the grocery store. Can you watch my kid while I do that? That's something you guys could do. Also, volunteer in local schools to be a good role model for kids that don't have one at home. You can go in and just sit and read to classrooms. Anybody got, you know, a couple of hours a month that you could do that? Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> so there's some things that you could do. Or you could serve as a foster parent at some point, right? And that's where you provide temporary care for kids that don't have stable parents. And these kids, again, have been removed from their homes for some reason uh, by Child Protective Services and they're placed into a foster care home, right? And that's a home that basically has been gone through all kinds of checks, background checks, and uh, safety checks, and health checks, and all this stuff, and basically you provide uh, care for this child while the whole legal system is doing their thing and trying to figure stuff out, right? And um, that's a huge way that Christ followers can choose to impact kids' lives for eternity, and it isn't for everyone, but if you think you might be interested, it really is a pretty amazing way to be Jesus in someone's life, okay? And you can serve in the foster care system in a couple of ways. You can do it as a single person. You can do it as a married couple. Some people take on long-term places, and they have one or more kids in their home on a regular basis, and they don't plan on adopting them. They just keep them and take care of them until sometimes they transition out or they go back to their families. Uh, that's just a calling that they have is to help raise kids that are not their own, okay? And every day you get to be Jesus to those kids, okay? Other people do what's called respite care, and that's where, um, say, Fred and Martha over here are um, foster parents, and they need a break. They need a weekend away, right? And so I'm a respite home, and so all I do is take short-term placements, and they bring little Johnny to me, and I'm approved. I can keep him overnight so they can go have a, a weekend away, right? And so not only do I get to minister to little Johnny, but I get to bless this family over here who are doing the really difficult work, right? And I give them a break. 
and I can keep them. You know, sometimes they do that while their birth family decides we're going to go on a vacation together without our foster kids, which is okay, right? Um, or we're going to go do something together or as a family, and we get to give them a break. So that's respite care. Um, so let me address some common um, objections that people have to working with foster care. Okay, first one is, well, I can't afford it, right? And maybe you're in college and you can't afford it right now. And you get out and get a job and you go, well, we still don't make a lot of money. Well, one thing you need to know is uh, CPS provides for all medical expenses for kids that are in the foster care system. They get free Medicaid. Uh, and so you don't have to worry about, you know, if he gets a sore throat or if he gets sick or, you know, God forbid he falls and breaks his arm, all that's covered, right? The other thing is, uh, whenever you're a foster parent, they give you a small financial stipend each month. And basically, you're not going to get rich doing this, definitely not. Um, but it's enough to help care for uh, providing food and some of the basic needs of the child. So it's not like I have to come up with all this money in order to be able to do this. So don't use that as an excuse. Uh, the other excuse that's used is foster kids are trouble, right? Well, yeah, some of them are. Okay? But what makes you think when you have kids that they're all going to be great? <laughs> you know? Just doesn't happen that way. Um, most kids in foster care, they have a complicated emotional background, and they don't have the emotional maturity to understand or make sense of what's going on in their lives. Right? I mean, imagine being a little kid, and for who knows why, strangers show up and take you out of your home and take you and put you in some other stranger's home what the heck is going on? I mean, even though I know mom and dad were kind of a little crazy sometimes or chaotic or mixed up on drugs or whatever's going on in their lives, this whole situation is just blows your mind if you're a kid, right? And so, yeah, they've got a lot going on. And that's where we as mature followers of Jesus can help by loving them and providing a stable environment, okay? Now, our family has done both. We've been foster parents and we've adopted and this is a picture of our family. Uh, it's kind of whitewashed there. Uh, me and my wife, Jill, next to her is Natalie, our oldest daughter uh, by birth. And next to her is Molly, our other birth daughter. Um, they're both ours physically, so we got no excuse. It's all genetic, right? Um, the other two uh, were adopted. And um, let me tell you about them. Uh, on the left is Tess. She's a high school senior this year. Uh, she was a kinship adoption, which means she was my wife's cousin's little girl. And uh, we first saw her, we knew my wife's cousin was pregnant, and uh, we went to a family reunion, and she showed up with this brand new baby, just sweet as could be, but you could tell mom was not doing very good. And uh, she was kind of strung out. And she was having a hard time with uh, drugs, and asked, uh, in fact, we talked about it on the way home from the family reunion, and, and just said, you know, if if she ever asked us, do you think you would be willing to take care of Tess while she got some help? Absolutely, no problem. And sure enough, about two days later, we got a phone call, and she said, would you guys watch her while I go into rehab? So we agreed to do that, and having been a family therapist and worked with addicts for years, I sat down and drew up a very big contract on this is what we expect from you to do, right? And uh, she brought her over, left her with us, and then was in and out of rehab, in and out of jail for about six months. And finally, um, so she wound up having her parental rights terminated uh, because of some endangerment issues and some drug issues. And uh, we were able to adopt tests. They asked if 
you guys have already been taking care of her. Would y'all like to adopt her? And at that point, we were totally in love with her and said, absolutely. All right. Um, and then uh, years later, we decided we weren't quite finished yet, um, and, uh, which is crazy because we were almost empty nesters. Oh, my gosh. You know, <laughs> kind of kick myself sometimes and go, what was I thinking? But uh, not really. We always wanted a little boy. And so we decided, you know, let's try this foster care thing. And so uh, we went through almost two years of training, and we had to make some additions to our house and some other things that are not typically required. But we needed an extra room, so we converted the garage. And um, we went through all the training and became foster parents and started taking care of boys. And um, it was hard, guys. Um, we had several boys in our home over the years, and these were good kids. I mean, you hear horror stories, um, but any one of these kids we would have adopted. Okay? But the first time I received a call from CPS, and we had this little boy named Talon who'd been with us for almost a year, and um, they call you up and they say, hey, this is Susie from CPS. Um, everything went through good, uh, good in court today. We'll be there to pick up Talon in the morning. Go ahead and get his stuff packed up. Literally, I thought, how fast can we pack and get to Mexico? We're leaving. They're not going to find us. I mean, that was literally my thought. And just because you become so attached to this kid, right? And after a few seconds, reality kicked in, and I said, okay, we can't do that. You know? Uh, I'm not licensed to practice in Mexico, and, you know, <laughs> it's really hot from what I hear. I don't want to go south. Um, but, man, it just rips your heart out, guys. It really does. And they tell you that if it doesn't, you're doing it wrong. That you have to love these kids so much like they're your own because they need that bonding. They already have a lot of issues with reactive attachment disorder and, and connecting with people. That you have to love them unconditionally so that when you give them up, it's just ripping your heart out. And it does. Okay? And after the last kid left our home, um, we were finished. I said, you know, I don't think I can do this again. And Jill agreed, this is way too hard. Um, so I called our, our caseworker. Case she was a new uh, case manager. And I said, you know, I think we're just done. This is so hard. I don't think we can handle this anymore. And um, said, all we really wanted to do was adopt a little boy. And the foster care part of it is just too tough. And she said, well, I didn't know that you guys wanted to adopt. I've got a little boy right here who needs a family. And uh, sure enough, that was Levi. And um, God just opened that door. He knew we were at our breaking point. And sure enough, there was this little boy who um, had been in the foster care system for years and just wanted a family more than anything else. And uh, we fostered him for about six months and were able to adopt him about four years ago. And he's here with us this morning. He's a pretty awesome little boy. Um, and a uh, huge part of our family. So God blessed our family through this process. And I got to say, man, it's given me such spiritual insight into being adopted by God that I don't think I ever would have had otherwise. I mean, if any of y'all have ever had kids before of your own, you know that when you first hold that baby, I mean, there's just, it's like, it changes you. It changes your life, right? And for me, that change was, I got to see okay, God, this is what unconditional love really looks like when I held my little girl for the first time. But this was different, right? Because, okay, this was not physically my little boy, but I loved him just the same, right? And God began to reveal that to me. He showed me, again, okay, I love you way more than you even know. 
And I'm so dedicated to who you are, you have no clue. But just to get a glimpse of that is amazing. So is it always easy, you know, to be a blended family, a family that uh, has kids that were biological and adopted? No, it's not always easy, but we have fun with it, okay? Um, Adoption and foster care are huge commitments, right? But as God's adopted sons and daughters, are we called to do anything less? I mean, we're not, right? So make an impact in the life of a child around you. So let's jump back into Romans 9. The last choice that we can make, which will impact our ability to speak to a world that is increasingly hostile to Christ, is to stay focused on the Lordship of Christ. I love trains. This is awesome. (laughs) Um, People tend to have a problem with God being in control, don't they? And with Him making choices. Anybody here have trouble with God being in control at times? I'll get you some of my cards. Yeah. (laughs) Now we all do, right? I mean, we all have trouble with that at times. It's difficult to allow God to be in control. But it's nothing new. I mean, we see that all throughout Scripture. And Paul addresses some of that here, starting in verse 9. And I'm going to read some of this again. Uh, For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born and had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has a mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? And I love this part. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Wow. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Okay, this section addresses several situations where God made choices in people's lives in the Old Testament and kind of the result of those choices. And since we don't have time this morning to go back and unpack every one of these, I want to challenge you to go back and read these stories in the Old Testament this week and see how God interacted and, and, and uh, chose things in these people's lives and see what the outcome was, right? The reality is God acts justly and lovingly with humanity. But we don't always see it that way, do we? Not at all. Typically, the end result is that we tend to blame God, right? And we blame him for what we see as injustice, and we blame him for our own failures. Well, God, it's your fault that I got that speeding ticket, because I was going to church, (laughs) right? So it must be God's fault. If you hadn't instituted this thing called the church, I never would have got the speeding ticket. (laughs) Yeah, Um, it's kind of crazy, but we do that, right? Instead, you know, we want to ask questions like, you know, how can God blame us? Why in the world is it my fault? Isn't he in control of everything? You know, we tend to do that. But Paul deals with that there in verses 19 through 21. And basically he says, who are you to question God? 
I mean, we get a little bit on our high horse sometimes, don't we? We get a little familiar with God, and you know, and we just want to lash out him. And I don't think that's all bad. I mean, you go back and read the Psalms, and there's David pouring his heart out to God, saying, "Where are you, God? And why have you abandoned me? And you've left me all alone." And he's called a man after God's own heart. And I think part of that is because he wasn't afraid to be real with God, right? But there's a line, you know. Um, ask my kids. There's a line. You don't cross that line. We can play. We can have fun. You can be a little sarcastic to me. But when you get to that line, you better like cool your jets, because if not, there may be some wrath coming, right? And that's usually in the form of you got grounded from electronics, right? Um, but it works. So, but there is that line, right? And so we've got to know, okay, God wants me to interact with him. He wants to hear my frustration, but i got to know where that limit is, right? Um, I don't need to challenge his authority. And when you think about it, it's really crazy that any human would actually have the audacity to shake their fist at God and to question him. But we get a glimpse of that. Anybody read the book of Job lately? Yeah. I mean, here's Job who basically lost pretty much everything in his life, right? And he holds it together pretty well for a while, right? His wife says, curse God and die, you know, just be done with it. It's a real joy to live with. <laughs> and, you know, his friends come along and kind of say some of the same things, right? And finally, I guess Job's just had enough and he starts to question God. And what does God do? He shows up and he's not real happy and basically questions Job and says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And where were you when I measured out the heavens? And who in the world are you to question me? We don't want to be in that position with God, right? Okay? But that's a danger, I think, that we face sometimes with our theology of God these days. We live in a time where, you know, people believe that God's law and expectations for our behavior seem to be increasingly outdated. We don't really need to respect God. And I think if we're not careful, we can buy into the cultural view that says God's not that relevant today. Yeah, I go to church on Sunday morning and I feel good, get my soul uplifted, and then, you know, I get to go do whatever I want to the rest of the week. I mean, things like sexual morality and financial stewardship become issues that you just don't need to be that concerned about, right? Because we're so much further advanced than that old set of old-fashioned values or rules, right? Ever heard anything like that? Yeah, this stuff's not really relevant anymore. It's a 2,000-year-old book. What are you doing living your life according to that? Hmm. But that couldn't be farther from the truth, right? God's Word gives us a guidance for how to have the best life possible and how to avoid some major pitfalls that are outlined in it, right? Uh, that, guidance, that guidance can set us free from a life of bondage and shame. I mean, the freedom that we think we get by doing whatever we want if you look a little further down the road, that road ends and it goes right off the cliff, right? And we think, I'm free, I can go do what I want until my marriage is over or I get arrested or enlist any one of the other things that we wind up getting ourselves in trouble doing because we, don't, because we ignore God. And the cool thing is we get to share that truth with the world around us who finds itself increasingly at odds with the message of God. And because of that, it's important to be aware that we can't view Scripture through our own beliefs or through those of our changing culture. 
When we look at things like homosexuality or abortion, spiritual doubt, transgender issues, politics, addiction, goes on and on, right? We need to look at Scripture first and not go to it with preconceived notions about what we think or feel that God would say about whatever the topic is. We need to search God's Word for guidance in all areas of our lives and not use it as a way to rationalize our lifestyle choices or soothe our conscience. And there's going to be times that we can't be free of our preoccupied, or I'm sorry, of our preconceived notions or opinions, right? I may have some preconceived notions or beliefs that are so ingrained that I just can't cut that off. But I've got to be open enough to admit that, what my biases are, so that God can allow, uh, be allowed to speak to me, right? If you um, do any research, if you read uh, like clinical research, that's one of the things they do is they'll do this research study and they'll uh, uh, document everything. And usually at the end of the study, they'll say, okay, here's what our biases were. Going into it, we try to acknowledge where we were biased. Okay? That's really helpful to know, right? Oh, well, your research proved this, but your biases, when I look at them, of course your research proved that. So that's what you were wanting to prove. Okay? So we need to be open to be able to commit, uh, to admit that that's what we struggle with. So an example of this, uh, in my counseling practice, I've worked for years with Christian men and women who struggle with unwanted homosexual desires and attractions. And there's a lot who are actively serving God and resisting their fleshly and relationship desires and uh, are just a real blessing in the church. But there's another pro-gay theology movement who basically says that God made them gay and that he's totally okay with them being gay. Okay? Even though that's in direct contradiction with what Scripture teaches in several places. But when you stop and think about it, at least from my perspective, it's not hard to understand where their desire to believe this comes from, okay? Most of them, when I talk to them, they grew up in a Christian family or had some kind of Christian worldview. They really love God, and they can't imagine living a life separated from God, okay? But, here's the big but, they believe the cultural lie that I was born this way, okay? And... I've been doing this 20 years. There's absolutely no verifiable and duplicatable research that shows that homosexuality is genetic or biological in nature, period. Okay? If it were, pro-gay groups would have replicated that study a million times and said, look, here's the proof. You cannot deny this. But it's not there. But our culture's bought into that. And people just believe you're born this way. This is who you are, Right? And so when they believe that, I'm born this way, then somehow when I go to God's word, I've got to make this okay. Because either God created me to despise me, or somehow the Bible's wrong. Because my reality is this is who I am, and so somehow God's word has to make that okay. Does that make sense? And if we're not careful, every one of us can be guilty of doing that. Because we all have biases. I had a patient client years ago who uh, came to me. He was a deacon in his church, young guy, married, kids, uh, great life, and um, was convinced from reading God's word that God wanted him to leave his, his wife and family to run off with his secretary because she was his soulmate. You're scoffing. What is that about? God told him to do this, right? No? 
Any, any, any doubters? How can you say that? You don't even know this guy. How can you say that? What? Um, it was really twisted, right? Um, he had to kind of like close one eye and tilt his head a little bit to see that in the Word of God. But <laughs> it, he could justify to me where he came up with that, right? Uh, that's scary. Guys, when I can be so deluded that I can go to God's Word and make it say whatever I want to to justify my life choices, that's a scary place to be. But, you know, it, I think it does come from, in most people, a desire to be in a relationship with God, okay? If not, why would they even care what the Bible said? Why not just say, I'm leaving my family. I don't care. I don't go to church anymore. But no, it's, I want a relationship with God, but we've got to be careful that we keep that pure and holy and say, this is not about my agenda. God, I want you to speak into my life and deal with whatever I need to deal with. I want you to confront the hard parts. I want you to point out the things, the flaws, the rough edges, sand them down. And um, I am willing to submit everything to you to do that. So the danger is when we approach God's word with our minds already made up and believe that it's got to say something because of what we feel or believe or based on some new understanding that we have because we're so advanced or enlightened. And the concept of lordship means that Jesus gets to call the shots about everything in my life. I don't get to negotiate with him about what's off limits. Okay? If I'm seeking a relationship with Christ, that means he gets to tell me how to live my life, period. And when we share that with the world, we can't pull any punches, guys. Okay? They need to know that Jesus is lord over everything. That means Jesus is lord over my time and my schedule, over my finances, over my sexuality, over my relationships, over everything. And to the world, that seems like, oh my gosh, why would you let somebody else tell you what to do? But if you live under Christ, it's like, hallelujah, that's freedom, right? I don't have to make all those choices. God's in control of that. And we've got to remember that we have the words of life, but they're difficult to hear at times, right? People may not like them, and even like here in Romans 9, they may even try to blame God for their problems or blame us. So I want to close. There was a time in Jesus' ministry when a woman was brought before him. And we see it played out here in John chapter 8. And we see how he dealt with her sin. So thinking about the context of how we talk to people in the world. It says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Caught in adultery. Right? That had to be awkward. They made her stand before the group, which is even more awkward, and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this as a trap in order to have a, bi a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, he was so calm and collected, love that, and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. First thing Jesus did is he confronted and called the teachers out for their judgmentalness, 
right? He put them in a no-win situation. But he didn't stop there. It would have been easy to say, okay, the crowd's gone, go about your way. But he didn't. He spoke truth into this lady's life and said, you got to stop doing what you're doing, okay? Go now and leave your life of sin. And I'm sure that wasn't easy for her to hear, but it needed to be said. And we're called to speak the truth to those around us, regardless of how difficult it might be, but it has to be done with love and compassion. So the three things that can help you to try to connect with people in the world today, choose your attitude and your mindset to those people around you. Choose to love them, not see them as the enemy. Secondly, live your life from the perspective of being adopted by God. Allow that to change how you think about the world. And third, stay focused on the lordship of Christ and the truth of God's word. And I want to challenge each one of you this week to find someone to have a difficult conversation with about a topic that you spiritually disagree on. And be bold. I mean, you have the Holy Spirit. You have God. You have the Word of God. What do you got to fear? Right? And there's a time coming, and it's getting closer, guys, where um, I think persecution is coming to our world like we've never seen before. Right? I mean, we're seeing that more on college campuses and places, but um, it's going to get worse, and you guys are on the front line. So I want to pray for you this morning and just pray that you be bold. Okay? Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for Romans 9. Thank you for the way that you choose, Lord, that you chose us and the way that uh, you continue to work in our lives. God, I pray for each and every person here this morning. God, I pray for courage, boldness, and just a sense of doing what's right, Lord. I pray that you would put people in our lives to have difficult conversations with this week and that you would help us to step out in faith and to do that. And Lord, we just thank you so much for Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. It's through him we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.